0: Hi, I'm Michelle Fenton, and welcome to the Happy Texture Podcast. What would it take to develop resilient, sustainable communities? How do we design cities that support our collective happiness? Join me as my guests and I discuss how we can plan, implement, and foster places that allow us to flourish and grow. In today's episode, I'm honored to welcome Dr. June Francis to the Happy Texture Podcast. Dr. Francis is an associate professor of marketing, co-founder of the CoLab Project, and special advisor to the president of SFU on diaspora research and engagement. Help me welcome Dr. June Francis. It is my privilege and honor today to have a very special guest with us on this podcast, June Francis. And as we were chatting earlier, June, we could just have a special podcast on like all the things you bring to the table, all of your credentials. But let's start with a special advisor to the president at SFU on anti-racism, chair of Hogan's Alley Society, associate professor of marketing at Simon Fraser University, co-founder of the CoLab Project, director of the Institute of Diaspora and Research Engagement at SFU. You've won several awards for service and teaching excellence you are an advocate for, for equity, diversity, and inclusion for racialized groups and advancement of non-traditional intellectual property laws. I mean, we could go on, but I would love to just dive into all of this. What drives you to bring this work into such sharp focus?
1: Well, I always have to remember who I am. And I think that's um, those are all descriptions of various roles I play and formalizing them into titles but if I think about who I am I am the descendants of of slave I'm a descendant Mm -hmm. of slaves I was brought to this part of the world not of my own or my ancestors own making and and so I always remind myself that I was a seventh child of parents who were born into colonial Jamaica Mm -hmm. I myself was at the end of the colonial period but born in as a colonial subject. Mm-hmm. Um, in a and and my, you know, journey from from Jamaica uh, was a product of neocolonial forces. Uh, that we had actually thought that colonization had ended. Right. Was, Don't um, think that. Yeah, <laughs> but, but but very quickly it became clear that that was what we had fought for and thought that was we arrived but i just want to pay homage as well to the number of slave rebellions that mm. occurred uh in jamaica because we were quite pivotal um you know let's suppose that let's just recognize that the narrative that talks about you know the emancipation of slaves as something that was bestowed on us mm-hmm. essentially it was a re- result of slave rebellions that finally brought the end of slavery right and i i from the
0: institutionalized slavery let's just in- be, institutionalized just be really slavery. let's be that. clear on
1: that yeah. the formal thing they call it, even that didn't end for another right. few years with indentureships and various other things so yeah, that's who I am. And I, I, I think it's really important in terms of what is for me to think about myself that way.
0: Well, that's incredible. I just I want to I wanna drill down a little bit in terms of your role on the Hogan's Alley Society and as advisor to the president right. in terms of anti-racism. I mean, this is something that we're going to start hearing a lot. We've heard a lot about, but unless you're in that group... You, don't, you probably have, not you know, a lot of our listeners may not have heard about this. Let's start with Hogan's Alley. What is the idea of Hogan's Alley in the resurgence of the Hogan's Alley Society? And how does that relate to your work at SFU, if at all?
1: Yes. So one of the things that is really important to recognize that um, situates Hogan's Alley is that space, is not neutral, Mm -hmm. right? Space is racialized. What I mean by that is that part of a white supremacist society or a white settler society or a colonial Mm -hmm. society was the idea that prime space or certain spaces belonged to the ruling class, the dominant class, often the white class, and that... Other people were relegated, and in the case of Canada, of course, uh, the indigenous people were taken off their lands and put in reservations. Mm -hmm. So space has always been a place reserved uh, and, and connected to power, so the people in power Held space, yes. and likewise, they relegated other people to less desirable spaces. Right. And that's why today we talk about environmental racism, for example, the fact that people are put in places that often are um, not only relegated but um, circumscribed. That people, that rules are put in place to keep these people away. Uh, from other places and often those places are treated very poorly in the case of Hogan's Alley we have the situation in Vancouver which was a segregated city let's be really clear that Vancouver was a segregated city so black people uh, and other racialized groups coming into Vancouver and at that time a number of white groups were racialized as well Mm -hmm. Italians and others and these people were not allowed to live anywhere Mm -hmm on the way just anywhere right Uh, and they found an enclave that they built a community uh in what is now called black uh, strathcona we call it black strathcona but it really was a community of a very large all uh, i mean the the majority of of the black community in vancouver as well as other racialized groups and then um and if you go further the chinese as well so Mm -hmm. you have this This community where the black community has a church, has developed a community. 800 people are on the rolls of the church. This is where the Pullman porters who come across, who who were really the slaves on the trains because they were not allowed as black people to rise above the sleeping car porters. Mm -hmm. And so they were the lowest rung on the trains. And it was a, a replica, by the way, of the antebellum south. The idea of black people serving you. Yes. And these people mostly had to rely on tips. So very, very lowly, very, very very humiliating positions they occupied. But there was no ability for them to sleep on the train except when no white person was around. And when they got to their, the cities, there was no place for them to go. Mm-hmm. But they could find home in Hogan's Alley. Likewise, performers coming through Vancouver... Um, Louis Armstrong. People could not find, could not stay in the white areas. Right. So they stayed in this area, in these areas, and so they had created for themselves a community with, with stores, with shops, with businesses. Uh, people owned their land. Some people, most people, rented, but nonetheless, this is their home community. Mm-hmm. And, of course, across this country, whenever um, the idea occurred, and and, and this occurred during uh, what we call urban renewal, and it's important to think about urban renewal as projects designed to create um, enclaves of white uh, individuals, and then the street system and the networks to get them to these suburbs. Yeah. And they always, right, they looked around and thought, where will we destroy in order to build these highways?
0: Right, and Hogan's Alley
1: is a great example. And Hogan's Alley, exactly, was slated. And it's interesting how they, this is never, it's always done with a plan. So the plan was to, to, of course, you you know, destroy Hogan's Alley and put the the viaduct there. And in order to implement it, it was really important to make Hogan's Alley um, to, to denigrate it. In other words, to start to think about Hogan's Alley as a blithe. Right. So they stopped collecting garbage. The services were withdrawn. Uh, there's a, there's a Randy Clark, who is, a, who is a descendant who lived there, recounts one of the most heart-wrenching stories as a child, the only bike he ever owned as a child. And he came home one day and creosote had been sprayed on the street uh, a, a toxic substance and and it was sprayed over his bike mm. and every time he tells i remember that story, I am actually driven to tears mm-hmm. of a young boy who 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 the only community had his grandmother um you know had a, a, a bar in the neighborhood i mean it was a thriving place yes. and yet um this is what he experienced and so People started to protest. They tried to get the city to give them grants and other things because they started to say, well, you're not upkeeping your lot. Uh, They always constructed so that by the time... The citizens here that it's been destroyed—they're all on side right. because it's the den, it's the red light district, it's yes. where it's it's the poor part. It's almost it's, a campaign. Yes, yes, the crime infested, yes. uh, derelict yeah. place, and so some people started to move out earlier when they realized right. this was deteriorating. Others stayed to the bitter end, but nonetheless, um, they destroyed uh, uh, Hogan's Alley with. Uh, a highway to nowhere because as we all know the Georgia uh, viaduct was stopped by the Chinese community who had a lot more numbers and power mm-hmm. and and so the highway was never completed but the, the viaduct yeah. remained.
0: I mean that, that really goes to the point that space even though we you know as architects and designers think of space as this benign thing that we then create within has so much power and Intensity in how we wield that power, how we as a colonial structure wield that power. And, you know, one of the things I'm struck by is even though Hogan's Alley was a complete community, there was still this lack of sense of belonging to the whole. Uh, And one of the things that we see here in Vancouver is that even though you might be in different communities, if you're in this sort of... uh, framework of a colonialized, well, a colonialized society, colonialized framework, you belong, even though you're in in very unique communities. And yet, here we are, Hogan's alley, being removed from that belonging, that sense of belonging. And so I want to segue back into the role of uh, an advisor for anti-racism. And I imagine considering space in that uh, regard, not just... Well, space, policy, hiring yeah. practices, all that stuff. And, and how is it that we we stop this, like, uh, destruction of the sense of belonging? People who, let's be honest, unless you're Indigenous to Canada, you know, we're all visitors here, right? right? you know? Although
1: I do make a distinction that people who are forcibly... Right. Uh, no i mean some of us came but of course uh, many uh, generations back of black people in nova scotia and other places in canada and they also migrated and we think about the pioneers mm-hmm. who came up mm-hmm. i just want to acknowledge that um especially the descendants of slaves right and, and both of them are descendants of slaves mm-hmm their uh, arrival was forced. Right. So I, I make that distinction. That's a good distinction. Um, yes. But I want to go back to this idea of space and universities and, and being the advisor on anti-racism. Universities are arguably one of the most uh, white, white supremacist, and I say that and I'll explain why I use that term, colonial structure. Okay. White supremacists in the sense that the idea, universities were built around, you, you might say, European-centered, right. notions, colonial, uh, uh, and, 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 and what it, the universities aspired to do and did do in Canada was to promote ideas primarily from the European tradition right yes right
0: yeah so I think no one would disagree with that right. right so if you think
1: about the courses the classes yes. what you learn as an architect what I learn as a business in my business program what you learn in sociology and philosophy the Greeks etc all of it is to aggrandize and to valorize and to, 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 to focus our attention on European achievements mm-hmm. And what that means is the exclusion of other histories, right. other philosophies, yes. other ways of knowing, other intellectual traditions.
0: Well, certainly when I learned architecture, I, don't, I can't remember learning anything outside of a European architecture, a I'm, European philosophy of architecture.
1: Exactly, and some of the work I hope we'll get to a little bit on some work we do with the Parks Board as well, but it's around this idea that um, uh, that, that everything about the university, right, particularly uh, by 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 in some ways you could call it a European indoctrination, mm-hmm. it has created self hate in some people because. Of course, in the sense that we believe that our ideas are not as valuable. Somehow we didn't accomplish quite as much. Because if the grand university hasn't thought fit to talk about us, then it means that we don't belong. So it's not only the physical space, which I will get to in a moment, but everything about universities signal that. So if you go to the libraries, you will find books, a preponderance of books that support one set of uh, European-based ideas. Uh If you go into a class and look at all the the ways, you know, the courses, it it could go, health science, it doesn't matter what you look at. Uh, All of it tends to be almost universally about European ideas, including med schools where the doctors once told me they couldn't find my vein because they they didn't learn how to access veins um, on dark skin. Right. So everything valorizes and, and gives advantage therefore to one group. So even if we're racialized people, we're learning the same stuff. Right. And that's why Bob Marley told us to emancipate ourselves, my compatriot Bob Marley, from mental slavery. That's right. Right? Yes. Because that's the beginning of it all. Mm. But Part of that also is that when we are in those spaces, we are not represented. We do not actually belong. Right. We're, we're sort of interlopers into somebody else's world. And so we're, we're, we're made to feel like we have been invited. And so, so let me get to this advisor. I will get to it. <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, even if you look at Arthur Erickson's um, award-winning uh, Burnaby Mountain right. Uh, right. design, that's a design that when I first was interviewing at SFU, I actually thought the university hadn't yet been finished. <laughs> I was wondering why, after all these years, they hadn't finished the university. Because, from my aesthetic, unpainting concrete has got to be one of the greatest, most uninspiring, and even the layout of the place did not hit my eye with any kind of joy. Certainly, I knew I was not in a place that I belonged physically, Mm -hmm. and we also have instances at SFU, including the arrest not too long ago of a black student, who was seeking refuge on the campus, and the way it was done was also a questioning of him. He had to prove that he belonged there. Right. Uh, It's not assumed. It's not assumed, and the Black Student Union, this this Black Students Association at SFU, Soka has spent a lot of time uh, over the years um, because they were displaced from their their room that they had, and they argued we need a black space. And only recently we're now in the process of returning that uh, student society to a black space, and it's on their advocacy. So we really are seen as not as marginally belonging. So when, you know, this Black Lives Matter protest occurred... And I was being pulled in a million directions around um, contributing to all of a sudden a new awakening, a new set of perceived interest in uh, blackness and what does it mean uh, for exclusion and when people started to have the conversations. I really felt that the university was a place that fundamentally had to understand that right across its research, its pedagogy, its physical space, yes. its policies, how it hires, mm-hmm. how it promotes how it recruits.: students. How it recruits, Who gets tenure? Yes All of those things excluded by faculty and staff and students. right and therefore Canadian society, right? Mm -hmm. We are a pillar of the society. So I was, you know, me and others got together and formed the Black Caucus where we pulled the students together and started to really call on the university in a much more assertive way to, to, to recognize the great harm. And we started to get collect stories of students. And, you know, i got to tell you that even though I know students were excluded, because often I get a lot of black, I get black students coming to me uh, saying that I can't get a supervisor because they don't understand my work. Right. I need you to help supervise me. And often I do it off the corner of my desk. Or to just support them, or to just say hi, I know how you must feel, to talk with them about the fact that they don't even have food they can tolerate. You know, what I mean, all the ways in which black faculty spend a lot of time on unpaid work to try and support our communities. When I listened to those students and I heard the degree of hurt. Um, I remember one student saying that I w- I'm I'm dying to leave so I can get over the trauma of university, mm-hmm. when this should have been a joyous time.
0: Well, that's what I, I was just gonna get into a little bit. Is like when when we talk about universities, it, and and when we when we perceive as universities, and and not see the guardrails of colonialism, you know, if, if we're ignorant to those, we think of university as a, a thriving place of ideas of inclusivity of diversity of you know pushing the envelope and so what better place to start this dialogue and to start looking at different ways of designing places not just places but policies and like you say recruitment promotion all that stuff for inclusion and specifically for not inclusion in a check the box kind of way but real to talk about real belonging right Belonging. Belonging. Yeah. You know, it's not like, okay, we've included you. It's that you actually feel that you are part of that community in in, in an integrated kind of way. Right. So I I actually want to talk about, because colonialism has come up a lot, and as it will, and we're seeing that conversation happen, not just in Black communities, but certainly in Indigenous communities. Uh, when we talk about colonialism and we start thinking about it, I think we can if we actually are genuine, we can start to see the structures all around us right. let's talk about decolonialism because right. to me, as an architect, right. that is the promise yeah. of a better society, a more resilient society, a happier society and, and hence the happy texture podcast um, not to be tongue in cheek about happy texture, but I mean there there are things that we as a society can do structures that we can rethink that actually promote happiness and resiliency in communities. Uh, And so let's talk about decolonialization.
1: I love that subject. So first of all, I just want to just make this point. So when the president asked me if I would serve as the advisor for a limited time, because I'm not part of the establishment and I, I like to keep my soul, Uh, independent. Uh, I did agree. And it's because I I did see some evidence of taking it seriously. I teach, I want to talk about decolonialism. I'm going to start by talking about the course I teach. I teach a course to the indigenous uh, uh, students, leaders. uh, SFU has uh, a master's program in executive uh, business education, only one in the country. I think the only one in North America um, and I teach the marketing course. Amazing. Right? Yeah. So what do we do, yes. right? This is marketing. And, and likewise, all design fields were the purveyors of colonialism, right? right. Yes. They created the structural realities
0: yes. and the aesthetic realities to reinforce ideas. Yes. I mean, I, I often say that my role as an architect, for better or worse, is to concretize yeah. the powers that are in place right and we know that you're going to a bank and they make you line up
1: a certain way sit a certain place Yes. Um, so these places are all designed um, and marketing likewise it's just a set of ideas uh, it, but but the visual uh, it's 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 probably appropriate to say that marketing was quite instrumental in in bringing to the mass market racism, mm-hmm. because it was through these ideas that that you know, the time and, and you know early imperialism many people didn't read but they could they could decode physical things and they could decode uh, marketing. Mm-hmm right? Marketing concepts. So you saw the pear soap, right? That, you know, cleaning off black skin meant creating purity, that kind of thing. So coming back to my marketing course, I see it as a course um, that is deeply, that has deeply, uh, um, was designed to support colonial structures. And in the case of Canada, uh, Indigenous people were a, a major object of that colonial process.
0: For more information on this or any other episodes of the Happy Texture podcast, you can find us at happytexture.com. H-A-P-P-I-T-E-C-T-U-R-E.com. Special thanks to our sponsors, Cora Architecture and Interiors, Designing Places for Being. Post-production by Vanessa Hennessy.